Hello and welcome back. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I guess also hosted by Mozart, who I love and adore, but we finally found an end to that intro. Very good. Well, I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Uh, As many of you know, I'm usually on Progressive Radio Network and have been on there for some six to seven years at this point, oftentimes on Mondays and Wednesdays, but Instead, on Wednesdays, I'm now on Blog Talk Radio, so please join me here. It's really a pleasure. And on this show in particular, we are engaging themes regarding the economy and politics and looking largely at how we can solve the problems uh, that are facing us in both these domains by uh, using psychological insight of understanding the nature of neuroscience and as well, just on a pure behavioral level, what we can do to curb the excesses which have helped to bring us to an abyss, nothing short. And it's scary. It's put millions of children at risk in our own wealthy country. Uh, They're not able to just even have dinner. And this is a very sad situation. And there are reasons for it. And the reasons are trackable. They can be understood. And they can be reversed. And this show is largely about doing just that. And if you are just becoming familiar with my show, A Better World with Mitchell Rabin on Blog Talk Radio, go to our website at www.abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv for more information on the kind of work we do. Today, we are going to be spending the show with a colleague and good friend of mine, Guy Ventresca, who has been a student, an avid, ardent student of history for decades, really, studied it in uh, college, and really throughout his whole life. He has spent time in the military as a lieutenant, uh, was actually even raised to the rank of captain, um, and commanded a tank company in Germany during uh, during the Cold War. So he's been involved in many things, and he's had a chance through his work also in information technology with the federal government down in Washington, D.C., to look at the world from many different angles and many windows into the same subject. And uh, as an astute uh, student of history, he has come across so much, and he's going to be sharing with us some of those insights some of which he has recently written up in a very interesting article he calls Bigger Than Bernie, The Real Cost of the Bank Bailout. And actually, this is a bit of a microcosm. It's a kind of a fractal relationship to the rest of what is aching and ailing us in our larger society economically. Because if we track the kinds of indiscretions, to put it very nicely, illegalities, unethical activity that has taken place over the past several years before, I should say, the 2008 debacle and after, even up to just a couple of weeks ago when the banks got their final bailout 
uh, bailed out of criminal activity by paying off some $26 billion to a few people and uh, the government itself, actually, in um, another coup. Uh, we will begin to understand why things are the way they are. By the way, I want to just apologize because our shows usually air at 6 o'clock, and due to uh, an unusual computer glitch that thought that New York City was actually closer to Samoa, we start now at for this week at 6.30 instead of 6. We'll resume the normal time next week. So I'd like to bring Guy Ventresca on if he's on the air. Are you there, Guy? Are you available? Okay, let me, I'm still getting used to all of the uh, switches here. And Guy, are you there? Not yet. There you are. Yeah, how's that? Is that better? Excellent. Hi, Guy, how are you? Do I sound like I'm calling you from Fiji? <laughs> <laughs> Papua New, Papua New Guinea. Right. Well, I'm you know if I'm supposed to be six hours before you, that's where I, I'd like to be. Um, exactly. I don't blame you. Well, I'm glad that through technology it can seem like you're just next door. So welcome to the show, guy. Thank you. Thank you. That was an excellent introduction. And by the way, in addition to my army time, I spent 14 years as a government contractor in various federal agencies. So. I'm really aware yeah. of how things work. Yes, you're you're used oh. to how they work operationally inside the federal government's bureaucracy, and so that's where you were on the inside. But you gained, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, your your understanding of the real economics of things and politics by being outside the system. That's right. Yes, it's just okay. been. Yeah, where I, where I shifted my understanding of historical imperatives uh, from the strictly political and and conventional historical viewpoint into the economic one. So I've integrated economics with politics and history. Yes, indeed, indeed. In fact, it wasn't long ago that I saw you at a, a seminar that was called Deep Politics, which is really understanding the the economic substrate of political activity. Right. That was um, Peter Dale Scott uh, at the Open Center. And Correct. he's argued that, that since the end of World War II, we have a, kind of a, uh, an underground political state. There's the surface politics that we're aware of with the race, right. the horse races and all that, and the elections. Yes, and right, voting. right. But underneath that is a permanent substrata of, of a, yeah. he calls it deep political state, which is permanent. Good. And rules the roost. So whoever happens to win electoral office ends up having to implement policies that these faceless bureaucrats put into. Yes, exactly, exactly. I remember, in fact, you're reminding me of a conversation I had with um, the son of the inventor of the Learjet, John Lear. Right. Who was a pilot for the CIA and other private companies. And he jetted around, you know, heads of state all over. Something like 30,000 hours of flight time, something ridiculous. That he had? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I didn't remember that, but I do remember this guy. He educated those of us who were in his class. 
with this. He said, there is a permanent government, and the permanent government is military, and the permanent government has nothing to do with your elected officials. They are the face of government, what you're referring to as the surface government, Mm -hmm. surface politics. But the deep government, those are the people who are making the real decisions about how money is spent, where it's spent, and how much it's spent. And it's done in secret. And it's done in secret, exactly. So tell us a little bit about Bigger Than Bernie. And this is another part of, this is surface media. You know, Bernie Madoff as the big, mean, bad guy, which, of course, he was. But as you well put it in your paper, that is but one grain of sand. So explain what you mean. Well, yeah, one of my key lines is there. If you think Bernie was the worst Ponzi scheme in history, when the government swindles, they do it bigger than Bernie. Yes, exactly. So he was accused of running a $70 billion Ponzi scheme. Um, But when you add up all of the um, the elements of the bailout, it comes to (coughs) – when I first discovered it, it was over $12.5 trillion. Yes. Now it's over $16 trillion. And yes. that's based on the audit of the Federal Reserve that was done by Bernie Sanders of Vermont as yes. part of the, uh, of the Dodd-Frank uh, Senate Finance Reform Bill. Yes, yes, yes. So the, when you look at those numbers, they're just staggering. I mean, how can you even They're staggering. In fact, I've even heard as much as high as $26 trillion all told, because there are so many billions of dollars that get lost between the cracks in Iraq. If you remember, they have that whole, uh, that whole, um, not a tray. What's the word it, it, for it? It, 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 was a, it was a pallet load of cash. Pallet. <laughs> exactly. A pallet load of $100 bills that went missing and no accountability. Yeah. Similar things have happened as well in Afghanistan. So there are I mean, the literally pen, the, billions that trickle through the fingers of our uh, leaders, so to speak. So yeah. what does it really come to? What does all this really mean, Guy? You know, you just reminded me that the Pentagon has admitted to being unable to account for billions of dollars every year. And the estimates are a, a total of Ten trillion over twenty years, so that's five hundred billion a year that they can't account oh, for. My God. It, it's it's not lost. It's just they spent it, but they're not sure where or how. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but remember to pay your fair share. Right, right. Your fair share, so they can lose it, spend it, waste it. So as a regular An citizen, toilet seats and everything else. Yeah, you know, we're we're the rest of us, the normal citizen, the average working Joe and Jane, we're struggling to to make do, and these morons in Washington and other, actually they're in every state, they're literally in yeah. every state. Yeah. Um, they're living large, and they're doing it with borrowed money mostly, not mm-hmm. necessarily with direct tax dollars. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, it's it's not that <clears throat> six. 16 trillion actual dollars were stolen from the pockets of the American people. But a lot of it is borrowed money or money that was digitally created out of thin air by the Federal Reserve. 
So, I mean, don't, it's bad news, but you have to keep that in mind. It's so, bad news. I mean, this, to me, when I'm listening to you speak and knowing what I know, which is I feel oftentimes way more than I really should or feel comfortable knowing, uh, what we're dealing with is truly an old boys club. Now, some of the money that the Federal Reserve Bank loaned out at the quarter or eighth of a point of interest that you highlight in your uh, in your paper here is was to companies such as Harley Davidson, <laughs> companies that have nothing to do with their totally private companies. So when I look at this, and I'm not one for etiology anyway, but to think that these people dare say we have a capitalist system with oil subsidies, agricultural subsidies, subsidies everywhere you look, and then even a Federal Reserve Bank loan, of course, a private institution in itself, right. loaning money to Harley-Davidson, what, to make bigger motorcycles? Well, probably, more oil? It, you know, that money probably went to the private investment capital firm like Blackstone or Goldman Sachs that had financed um, Harley-Davidson in their tough time. Uh-huh. And, and so now that they're profitable again and, and you know high on the hog, so to speak, yes, right. uh, <laughs> that the that investment company has to get paid back at a profit. Yes. So that's the thing. If the Federal Reserve loaned money to banks and to finance institutions and to corporations, and that and those corporations then. Uh, like I mentioned, they're only paying a quarter percent interest at best. Usually it's about an eighth of a percent interest. They can then loan that money out or invest it and make 2 to 3%, which is more than quadrupling their investment. Yes, of course. Uh, and now they're sitting on cash. So the exactly. banks are cash rich, the insurance companies, the finance companies, and they're not lending it out. And, and now we're, we're about to face a second housing crisis because um, I think, if I can remember correctly, 30 to 40% of current mortgages uh, where people are still in their homes and still paying the mortgages mm-hmm. are underwa- underwater, meaning yes. that the, <clears throat> the payments are, are failing to be met. And I have a house have, like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. So the, the reality right. is... Now, Well, the concern is that we're not really in a recovery. We're in a period of stagnation because in between recovery and and recession, you do have this limbo called stagnation, and that's that's where we are. So that the the true GDP of the country is now like a half a percent or one percent a year. This country at the level of growth it, it is used to, that's not that's not a recovery. Sure. It's insufficient. But, you know, there's a whole new model, as you well know, Guy, uh, that that comes from the new economics and a whole new way of thinking that this notion of economic growth is really in some ways a dinosaur. It doesn't have to be the way it was when we talk about growth, which also usually points the finger to consumption. And it does not include a true notion of natural sustainability. So... That's its own whole conversation that we really won't have time to open up to to, to today. But I really would like to kind of go back to uh, some of what you laid out in your 
piece, which sure. I very much favor, and I've written about it in the Huffington Post and on PRN, et cetera, which is this idea of a moratorium on foreclosures. This is so important. And when you mentioned about a second bubble bursting in the housing market, I thought all the more reason, and I'd like to hear you talk about that and the other solutions, because we've done some what of a searing analysis of the problems. And the problems I personally think are fundamentally psychological, and then it becomes a matter of peer pressure of people partaking in a system that's sick, and they don't know how to extract themselves. And the sexiness, it's an addiction, is what it is. And I really analyze all that's been going on on Wall Street as an addiction. And it needs to be treated, thought of as that and treated as that. Um, But to back off of the psychological component, which I think is really central, I still would like very much to hear your practical solutions to the current debacle we're finding ourselves in. Okay. Yeah, because um, after I laid out the the doomsday scenario, I then said, okay, don't despair. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you, guy. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the important thing is that people recognize that when it comes to addiction, um, money and power are definitely at the top of the totem pole. Uh, Sex and drugs and alcohol are like a distant third, fourth, and fifth. Yes. (laughs) I think you're very right. So an easy thing to do. Now, I don't know how some of these things can be executed, whether it would be the president or the Congress or Supreme Court. or st- I know the states could definitely. The states have a lot of power that they've not exercised. But let's mm-hmm. just agree that these things should happen somehow. Yes. yes. Um, a, a two-year moratorium on all home foreclosures. Uh, during this time, there could be a commission formed to sort out the title the, the mortgage title mess, um, something similar to what Ronald Reagan did during the savings and loan crisis. Uh, he created the Resolution Trust Corporation, and they went through all of those messed up um, mortgages and from these savings and loans that had been deregulated by mm-hmm. Reagan, and then subsequently greed got a hold of them. It was like a mini version of what went on uh, recently here with the mortgage signing mess. Mm-hmm. The, the, the robo signing, the robo signing, and and the whole col- uh, collateralized debt obligations and CDWs and all that. Matter. Oh yes, yes, yes. The derivatives, credit default swaps, the derivatives, yeah. right? So this is back in the early '80s. So the Res- Resolution Trust Corporation was formed, and they lifted people out of water, but they also put over a thousand bankers in jail, including CEOs of some of these savings and loans. Is that so? Yes, and and yeah. they bailed out the people. I mean, certainly Charles um, Keating. <clears throat> Keating was uh, yeah. one of them. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know he Ivan Trotsky. Yeah. So you know Reagan realized you know he he sort of created the mistake and but he fixed it. Yeah. So I'll give him credit for that. You mean so, he he created a mistake through the deregulation? Yep. Saw what he created and then repaired. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, yeah. you know, I'm not totally against him in, in, in always, but that was a good thing that he did. Yes. And maybe there were other forces at work there. You know, I think back then the Justice Department still had some backbone and some honor, yes. Uh, yes. which they don't anymore. Um, no. So uh, here's another thing. Uh, the bailout recipients use the money to pay 
100 cents on the dollar to their creditors. So, for example, if Bank of America was indebted to Deutsche Bank for uh, $50 billion, they would pay them 100 cents on the dollar so that no one took any pain or a haircut. Among, that, the, among the banks. Among the banks, right. Right. So I think retroactively you could uh, have some kind of banking congress. You could have a meeting like Bretton Woods in 1944 mm-hmm. where all the bankers get together and they agree we're, we're going to suffer a little bit equally. We're going to spread the pain, but we're gonna, this money has to be better utilized. Yes. You know, and my recommendation is 33 cents on the dollar. So mm-hmm. that way, that $16 trillion can go three times further uh, than it did in actually helping people. And then the money couldn't be held. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Interesting. And you also said, though, even if you were to credit $0.33, cents, you said it was really worth 20 20 yeah. Most of the junk, the CDWs and the other derivatives, yeah. are worth maximum $0.20 cents on the dollar. Yes. So I'm saying give them a profit, but not $0.10 cents on the dollar. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then the other exactly. thing is these, the five big banks that we have now, um, Citibank, Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Morgan and, Stanley. Yes, and uh, and and uh, Goldman Sachs, which Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. is not a traditional bank. It's it's really an investment no, bank. It's an investment that, bank. But yeah. they got banking status so that they could take part in all this free money. Yes. Well, you know that book. The best way to know a bank is to rob it. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll tell you, it's written by that economist, the professor. Yeah, 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 exactly. Down, I think, in St. Louis. I don't remember exactly, yeah. Oh, Michael Hudson or no, Jack Rathman? No, not Michael Hudson. No. Oh, okay, all right. I'm forgetting his name right now. But by the way, I was going really to mention good. the name uh, just as a as a detour here, there are some really brilliant economists. If people want to research this, and on Michael their own, Hudson's one of them. Yeah. Michael Hudson's one of them. Not to be confused, there is a uh, Wall Street Journal uh, journalist named Michael Hudson. He's different. The, this one yep. is the the professor from Saint, from Kansas. He's actually from Kansas. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He lives next door to Dorothy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, except he's not. Uh, he didn't go down the rabbit hole. Or maybe he maybe he did, and then he came back and tell us about it. Yeah, really. Uh, there's another one from Berkeley named Jack Rasmus, R A S M U S. He's very good, um, mm-hmm. and I'd recommend him. And then the third one would be Barry Ritholtz, who wrote a book called mm-hmm. Bailout Nation. Yeah, he's got an excellent blog. Well, I also and, like Richard Wolf. Oh, I think he's a, he, at NYU, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I've, he's yeah, very I've, right, and he lays it out from a kind of a largely from a labor point of view, and how world the world shifted in America due to labor practices, and uh, it, it's very interesting. Piece and wages being frozen. There's and been wages, no growth. Exactly. Yeah, real wages exactly, haven't exactly. grown since like so 1980. So what is it? I mean, we. I mean, look, glass. Eagle got repealed in 1999 by a Democratic president. You know what is the real hope here, guy? I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest this one thing and hear what you have to say. Uh, one of the reasons I actually started this show is to educate people about the candidacy of Rocky Anderson, who is mm-hmm. running for president in the Justice Party, and he was a Democrat. He was a mayor of 
um, Salt Lake City for eight years between 2000 and 2008 as a Democratic mayor. But he has since walked away from that and has walked away from duopoly politics because he sees that one hand really ultimately washes the other and no substantive change is taking place while both these parties are reaching into the same Wall Street pockets. So I'd like to hear, I, I see him, Rocky, as one possible solution. Whether he makes it this time or not is secondary, although I don't feel it secondary. I just, oh, it's tough. But what is it that you think we can do here? Okay, I, I would do, if every citizen of this country should do two things. One, they shouldn't give up on the electoral system, so they should vote as if it matters. And that would mean supporting third-party candidates like Rocky or mm-hmm. Ralph Nader if he chooses to run or, or right. anyone. You know. And if you're, if, if you're an arch-conservative and you want to vote for some libertarian, fine. Right. But don't stay away from the. the but do the it. One. You're saying do it. Yes. Don't don't yeah. don't stay away from the polls. Vote. The second thing is, while you're doing that, don't hold too strongly to the belief that electoral politics is going to create lasting change, because mm-hmm. it won't. It probably right. won't. What's going to happen? There are such strong forces in motion now that the pure impetus. I mean, like imagine you're at the bottom of a mountain and you're seeing. A, a, a snowball roll down the mountain and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it soon becomes so dirty and big and ugly that it's illegal and wrong are you going to stand there and hold your hand up and say I'm a citizen stop <laughs> <laughs> stop in the name of love <laughs> you better get out of the way that's right that's so right. I would say the second um, effort should be in the area of Grassroots organizing, perhaps a state and local okay. government. Because we've, every, we've got to wrap everything up in about thirty seconds, so okay. make your points well and quickly. Take a look at the public banking initiative, PBI, public banking initiative. dot net, I believe. It's mm-hmm. a way for states. It's a way for states to create their own central bank, a state chartered bank. It's one way we can get out of this mess. And I'll be happy to come back another time. We can talk about it more. Fine. Absolutely. Guy Ventresca, what a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> Thank you, Mitchell. I appreciate it. Absolutely. These are very good suggestions. They're concrete. They're thought out. And uh, I feel they have real merit for people to uh, look into, as well as the uh, economists you suggested as well. So thanks and, very and much. And, and don't forget that yeah. great American George Carlin They call it the American dream (laughs) because you have to be asleep to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) Da-dum-dump. On that note. (laughs) Guy, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. See you next time. We'll we'll have you on again. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Well, that about wraps it up. It is very hard to condense so much brilliance in the course of one half an hour, but I'm working on it. Thanks so much for joining us. You understand the importance of getting out to vote, understand the importance of demanding what you feel is right when it comes to bank moratoriums on foreclosures and the like. We have the we are the ones that can make a difference. We cannot be relying on others. Please visit us at our website at www.abetterworld.net. 
It's a call to action. We embrace the notion of sacred stewardship, that our way of relating to the world is one with respect, with love, and treating each other and the earth herself, our universe, as sacred. So we want to, you know, tread lightly yet firmly, and that's the game. Thanks again so much for joining us. This is Mitchell J. Raven. Also tune in to our Monday night show on Progressive Radio Network at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You'll get all the information on that at www.abetterworld.tv. I look forward to speaking with you all next week.